Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. We hadn't really dealt with specifically like this before in our lifetimes. We hadn't quite had an illness this infectious and this possible to cause serious illness to something that does look more like the flu. And the flu, of course, can still be dangerous, kills tens of thousands of Americans every year, but we don't orient our lives around the flu. If I had a dollar for every lockdown politician who decided to escape to Florida over the last two years, I'd be a pretty doggone wealthy man, let me tell you. Really, time to move away from this American exceptionalism, this notion that uh, our democracy is so strong and invulnerable that uh, what has happened around the world cannot happen here. All right. So we are going to talk about that right there. But one moment. One moment. Sally Shattuck. Sally. Sally. Where is she, you think? I don't know where she is. I'm not sure. Downstairs somewhere? Okay. Is she on her iPad? Probably. What's your take on American exceptionalism, Alice? I think America's pretty exceptional. Well, I'm glad you said that. But this is what I would say to you about that. Okay. Is American exceptionalism... And this is where... That's Mara Gay. She's in the editorial board of the New York Times. Mm Mm-hmm. That you just heard. Very well-paid... Uh, young woman, she's, hey, can you hang around the kitchen so when that mac and cheese is done, you can get it out? It's like 20 minutes. Okay. Thanks, buddy. So here's the thing. Alice? Mm-hmm. Here's the thing. So look, one thing, Mara Gay, she's a youngish uh, woman. She's really, actually, really beautiful. Really beautiful, and I have a crush on her. You should know that. She's, okay. She's a wacko progressive She's all talking about whiteness and white people hating to share the planet with or whatever. She is a upscale elite New York Times editorial board member who's beautiful and young and probably rich, probably uh, moneyed. 
She is, of course, one of the most privileged people on the face of the planet. But she's happy to talk about these issues, and she doesn't. So now, of course, she's um, she wants to. Um, <clears throat> it's time to do voting rights, and it's time to because it's all connected now. The Democrats, the pushes the way they have to do voting rights now because January sixth proved that our democracy is teetering on the brink. So now we have to do voting rights so that we can save the democracy. And she's saying, what exactly does like? <clears throat> What what does our bill have to do with January 6th, though? Because our democracy is teetering on the brink. And now we see because January 6th and because Trump is now going in. That was the, a riot. And the Trump, hold on, we're going to get that. The Trump, it's, the Trump people were, are now going to state houses and state governments and cha- whacking all the people, the secretaries of state who didn't, who weren't with him on this thing. Mm-hmm. So they have to save our democracy. So, so Schumer has to get rid of the filibuster. And they have to save the democracy because January 6th, as the New York Times says, is happening every day. It's still happening. And so she wrote that editorial. So she's explaining that this is the the coup is on. So this idea of American exceptionalism, she says, is as she as you just heard. It's really time to move away from this American exceptionalism, this notion that uh, our democracy is so strong and invulnerable that uh, what has happened around the world cannot happen here. So her idea of American exceptionalism is that what happens around the world can't happen here because we're exceptional, you know? And that really, that's a way of saying, going after nationalists and people who love the country, who, mm-hmm. who think we're so awesome, et cetera, and Trump people, et cetera. Um, you know, so they love to tear down the idea of American exceptional, exceptionalism. But American exceptionalism is not that we're awesome. Right. It doesn't say that. Whatsoever it says, we're exceptional. Yeah, we're unique, right? And the people who originally made um, observations, like De Tocqueville, weren't saying it's great. <laughs> they were saying that you would have to have an interesting, very unique, and impossibly to duplicate con- conflagration, conflagration, or confluation, con- mixture, confl- confluence, confluence. Yes, of events and experiences. To have this particular country. A conflagration is a fire. Right, conflict, okay. Conf- I don't know, okay. So what she thinks, because she's a uh, New York Times know-it-all but know-nothing who writes editorials, that, guys, if you think we're awesome, which she considers American exceptionalism to be, mm-hmm. the, she thinks that we say, because she's been educated to know she's smarter than us, people who go around talking about American exceptionalism, she's, she's um, <clears throat> oh, what's that called? Pro- projected that onto mm-hmm. us. That we're saying USA kicks ass when you say that. But that's not what it means. And she is, though beautiful and possibly going to be married to me <laughs> at one point when COVID comes back for you. She's also the one who was scared of all the American flags on Long Island, that's right? That's very much like her, right? <laughs> okay. But she's so privileged that she has like no real challenges because she's beautiful and rich and prestigious. Mm-hmm. And in New York, that, you know, might as well just make some up. So. That's Mara Gay. But I, I want to talk for a second about American exceptionalism. And I, and I, and I should mention that I think it's fu- it's, if, if you understand it, I think you have a better idea of what many people feel about the country. This country. Like, we don't really idealize this country as being the perfect country. This country is a rolling cluster bleep, rolling in tropic <laughs> mess. 
There's no doubt. It just happens to be the best rolling mess and offers extraordinary opportunities. Right. It's set up in a way you can't have a country that is that is run by the citizenry with a huge landmass, diverse needs, interests, and cultures without it being a mess. Right. You're going yes, it is a mess. So I just want to read here for a second. This is are you familiar with Seymour Martin Lipset? No. Well, I'm an intellectual, so I am. Oh, sorry. So uh he is he is an author and I think sociologist, I think, who um who died in around two thousand six. He looked into this topic of American exceptionalism. And I, I never would have gotten turned on to this stuff if Jonah Goldberg didn't talk about it all the time. But here is just part of the, his book, American Exceptionalism, A Double-Edged Sword, Chapter 1, Ideology, Politics, and Deviance. He says, Born out of revolution, the United States is a country organized around an ideology which includes a set of dogmas about the nature of a good society. Americanism, as different people have pointed out, is an ism or ideology in the same way that communism or fascism or liberalism are isms. As G.K. Chesterton put it, America is the only nation in the world that is founded on a creed. That creed is set forth with dogmatic and even theological lucidity in the Declaration of Independence. As noted in the introduction, the nation's ideology can be described in five words. Liberty, egalitarianism, individualism, populism, and laissez-faire. The, rev the revolutionary ideology which became the American creed is liberalism in its 18th and 19th century meanings as distinct from conservative Toryism, statist uh, communitarianism, mercantilism, uh, and uh, noblesse oblige dominant in monarchical, monarchical state uh, church-formed cultures. Other countries' sense of themselves are derived from a common history. Winston Churchill once gave vivid evidence to the difference between a national identity rooted in history and one defined by ideology in objecting to a proposal in 1940 to outlaw the anti-war Communist Party. In a speech in the House of Commons, Churchill said that as far as he knew, the Communist Party was composed of Englishmen and he did not fear an Englishman. In Europe, nas uh, nationality is related to community and thus one cannot become un-English or un-Swedish. Being an American, however, is an ideological commitment. It is not a matter of birth. Those who reject American values are un-American. The American Revolution sharply weakened the noblesse oblige, hierarchical, hierarchically uh, rooted organic community values which had been linked to Tory sentiments and enormously strengthened the individualistic, egalitarian, and anti-statist ones which had been present in the settler and religious background of the colonies. In other words, we hated the nobility, get off our backs, let us do our own thing. Mm -hmm. These values were evident in the 20, uh, 20th century fact, as H.G. Wells pointed out uh, close to 90 years ago. The United States not only uh, has lacked a viable socialist party, but has also never developed a British or European type conservative or Tory party. Rather, America has been dominated by pure, bourgeois, middle class, individualistic values. As Wells puts it, Essentially, America is a middle class, which has become a community, and so its essential problems are the problems of a modern individualistic society, stark and clear. He enunciated a theory of America as a liberal society in the classic anti-statist meaning of the term. 
So, I know what a lot of that means that I just mm-hmm. read. Almost 50%. But it's, in other words, saying that it is a unique place. It is an imperfect place. It is a place that's extremely violent. Is, as Jonah said, um, on the one hand, there were these wonderful things that make America difficult because we didn't have a feudal past and because we have this culture of bourgeois culture inequality and all the rest. But on the other hand, we have things like we're more violent than other countries and all these kind of, but we're just different things. Yeah, I mean, it is an interesting point because, you know, it. what I found interesting was this idea that, like, our political parties are so different. And part of that is that we don't have a parliamentary system, so there's less room for all this, like, multiplicity of parties to grow up out of things that, like, you see in England, there's, like, five big parties or whatever. You mm-hmm. know, there's a bunch of different things happening. Or, like, in Israel, whenever they have elections, you, they have to, like, form coalitions and stuff. Right, which is why they're... they're- the current um, prime minister of Israel, is that what they have, prime ministers? Mm-hmm. Is, is... He's like a moderate conservative. Kind right, of. but he's he's only got a year left because he gets jettisoned because part of the deal of the coalition was then the defense minister or whatever gets to go in. Yeah, so it's like they have to make all these deals yes. and wheel and deal and they govern by consensus more so and that's sort of how it works. Like in a parliamentary system, the party that wins the election and its coalition gets to sort of call the shots, you know? Our system is super messy and individual lawmakers can have a lot of power and the president can be of a different party than the majority of the lawmakers, which isn't what happens with a prime minister under a parliamentary system. In that type of system, like the party that wins gets to run things, like for real. We our system's a lot more complex in that mm-hmm. way. But in terms of like the party politics, P- but we pur- end up purposely. Right. But in terms of the party politics, we end up with these two parties that in a lot of ways are more similar to each other than they are to any of those like European parties. We don't have a far right nationalist party the way many European countries do. You know, there's no equivalent in the United States to UKIP in England. Right. It, it, it just doesn't exist. There's nothing here that's like that. And like he was pointing out, we don't have a socialist party. We don't even have anything that's really comparable to a labor party the way they have in England. You know, our our left wing is different and our right wing is different from what you see in Europe or in Israel, which is really like, Israel culturally is more European than than anything else, I think, in terms of their political system. Yeah, I think that's right. But... To a limit. To a there limit. There is an English pride and an individuality that, that comes out, there's no doubt. Israel is, I'm saying. I'm sorry. Okay, I thought you were talking about English. Yeah, no, I mean, in all countries are right. unique and different, but I'm saying, mm-hmm. like, it, in terms of, like, system, I think of Israel as being in the category with European mm-hmm. countries that have a parliament and everything. It's sort of similar. But, you know, it it is interesting how, like, this country was set up with a different group of people and different conditions, and we ended up with, like, a totally different outcome. Whereas all those other countries, really, like, including Canada and Australia, that are sort of European or European-connected countries, really have very similar systems to each other. Yes. And so we ended up, we had a different set of constraints, and we ended up with a totally different reality. Uh, Yes, no, absolutely. And I think that if you look out, just the way the country was made... You have people, it was not a fun thing. I'm going to go to America. 
It was the I'm going to be in the water in the in North Atlantic, in the Atlantic for months mm-hmm. and may die. And when I get there, I may last the winter or I may get whacked or something could happen. Who knows what could happen? Mm-hmm. But the yearning was so much to start an individual journey, you know. And I, and I can say individual, you know, your um, property and, um, you know, right to your own pursuits, you know, essentially. Right. And your own religion and, and this and that. And it, it, it was absolutely a rejection of the offerings in Europe. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, it, and, it's, it, and so when, and also. The yeah, and remained that way, really. If you look at immigrant stories from like the late 19th, early 20th centuries as well, you know, there's still, you know, massive people didn't show up here and end up on welfare. People showed up and lived arduous, difficult lives, often in extreme poverty, striving through pandemics and famines and bank runs and every other crazy thing that used to happen to people that that we don't really go through now, right? And in order to, you know, hew something of their own life from the world, you know, and and that was always kind of the deal coming here. Right. And and of course, once that, the, you know, communication became easier, et cetera, then it was the, the ideal dream. If you were a hard, if you were a hard worker in Italy, but didn't want to deal with the your oppressive government or whatever at that point there, then you saw the brochure that you could come here and have stuff that you could never absolute um, uh, right to property, you know, these other rights, et cetera. Um, and so this is, it was, it just made total sense. Come right, and the ability to have, to, to create a life where you can literally become anything you want to become, where your kids can grow mm-hmm. up and be senators and presidents and everything else. I right. mean, like that, that was not on offer in Europe for a long time. And in a lot of ways still is not. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I know a guy who, my old landlord, as a matter of fact, was a Russian guy who it was decided when he was like seven years old, whatever, that he would be a bodybuilder. They decided he'd be an athlete and a bodybuilder and they sculpted him and turned him into in the Soviet Union to be, and he was, I don't know if he was in the Olympics, but he was something in some kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But that was it. Everybody had a role. And they sat and they kicked the tires and said, this is what you will do. This is what you do. This is what you will do. And they still do that in European countries they in do a big it in, way. Even in England, somehow, you're on a track from pretty Yeah, early. no, once you, like, hit high school-ish age, like, usually around 14 in most European countries, you go to a high school that's, like, for what you're supposed to do. Right, which like, may not be all that bad. And you know? No, I mean, in some ways it right. is good, but... They also decide for you. You don't get right. to you don't get to look at all the pretty brochures of all the different high schools and colleges and decide what your dream is. You take a test and if depending how you score on it, they're like, Cool, you're gonna be a plumber and you're gonna be an engineer and you're gonna go to school for literature. Like, have fun. Now that's what you study. Like and that's what your scholarships cover and everything else. There's none of this like now we just do what we wanna do. <laughs> like that's not how other countries operate right right and and so i just think it's important that that people know american exceptionalism a little bit about what that means and it doesn't mean american awesomeness yeah because there's pluses there's pluses and minuses to everything you know i mean like we're not great at responding to pandemics in a lot of ways compared to like china 
right? China, they just lock everybody in their house until the outbreak is gone from that area and they'll deliver you food and they'll stand outside your door with a gun and if people try and leave, they'll weld you into the building. Yeah. Like, but they'll stop the spread of the disease. Like, but Americans, come hell or high water, uh, they are going to do that. We don't, we're never going to do that in this country because we're just not going to operate that Well, way. Americans also are generationally, since the beginning, obstinate. Mm-hmm. We don't like being told what to do. And nobody wants to be told what to do. F you. I, I'm wear a mask. F you. You mind your own freaking business. It, the gay movement. Um, we want to be married. You can't be married. F you. We're getting married. You know. It's like this. There is the. We don't like to be told what we can do and what we can't do in this country. Mm-hmm. And historically, it just doesn't. It doesn't end well. And it makes. I mean, the entire really conservative movement is, and certainly the libertarians is about saying I'm not perfect, but this central government state thing ain't telling me what to do yeah i mean i think uh i think there's conservatives that would disagree that they are the classical liberals i mean i think conservatives also has an aspect to it that a lot of them want to conserve culture and society it's like the chesterton's fence thing you know they're like yes they don't want the government messing with them but they also have a sense that like we don't want to go too off the rails here. This is working and we don't want to mess with it unless you unless we're sure it's going to work out better. It's like the Thomas Sowell, you know, just because you tell me, you know, we have to do something in the ideas that, you know, what are you going to replace it with? Right. Like, well, right. You can't just get rid of the thing until you have an alternative like, you know. Well, right. But all, but too many progressivism now, quote, obviously, pro- so progressivism pushes change for change's sake. Mm-hmm. Changing is um, is sophisticated to change. I'm changing. I'm always changing. I'm getting better. It's yeah, progress. Upgrade. Exactly. That's what it is. Right. And the conservative movement is saying, you don't necessarily know what you're going to change to, so let's let's hold on, <laughs> you know? Well, well, right, because they, like, back to the Chesterton Sense thing, like, some of these institutions were built up over time. And brain power went into them, and um, and blood, sweat, and tears went into these right. things, and they were tried and true, and they've been vetted. But that being aside, what you say about like the idea of classical liberalism in general, uh, I mean, I think it really holds true for most Americans of both parties, right? It, and they just differ in like how they interpret it on different issues. But in general, we have a sense in this country that. You know, we don't want the government telling us what to do, whether we're in either party. You know, I think both parties try and claim that mantle of being more free and being less the government telling you what to do. Right. You know, the the, the left tries to claim that on like abortion or gay rights and the right tries to claim that on things like the Second Amendment or free speech, things like that. So there there is I think there's a consensus in this country on some of these things that there isn't in other countries. And we have our debates and we have our political disagreements with already the underlying assumption, you know, that we don't think the government should be telling us what to do, which they don't necessarily in other countries. Like, we start from a presumption of freedom of speech and then we debate within that framework, right? Like, well, sure. should oh, you? Well, absolutely. Like, yeah. we start from a presumption that the government shouldn't be able to throw you in prison for saying something. And then we debate, like, well, but should you be able to, like, lose your job if you say something online your boss doesn't like? And then we have that debate. But 
in other countries like England, I mean, like civilized countries, you can be thrown in jail for saying something the government doesn't want you to say. Yes, yes, which is precisely the reason we created this country. Yeah, and it's really not something that we even debate in this country. It's something that there's agreement on across our political spectrum, with a few tiny exceptions. But- True, but it's right next door in Canada. I mean, it is, it's been criminalized to use, uh, to dead name somebody or use pr- wrong pronouns, etc. Right, I mean, so, but there's... In general, I think that... I like how you say general. Okay. General. Um, in general, we agree on things that in other countries they don't agree with us on. And I, I think that people don't realize how much how much our parties are like each other, like how much consensus mm-hmm. we actually have compared to, like, if you went out of this country and and what you would find in another country on offer for the political spectrum. And they would agree on other things across their country, like nationalized health care that we don't in this country. Mm-hmm. But we have different debates because we have a totally different framework and our way of understanding the government and our politics is different. Right. Which is part of the brilliance of the country is that there are so many portals of representation Mm-hmm. You get your your own personal civil rights and your own protected rights. You've got your uh, the state's rights. You've got the rights that you send your advocate to Washington D.C. as the House of Representatives. You've got to, you you send an advocate to Boston, Massachusetts, or whatever, mm-hmm. et cetera. There's so many interweaving uh, influences to it that the only it's meant to be a slog obviously oh yeah so nobody- and people it does make people mad like i notice this and this is something that i think that i worry is changing with millennials and gen z because i think they really like don't see the point in a lot of the slog and they mm. want to be more like europe or canada right and I mean, I see it even like at our town meetings and I happen to love town meeting and think it's really cool and fun. And for people who don't know, because people don't really have town meetings outside of New England, it's sort of a weird New England throwback thing like to the Puritans. But it's a unique form of government where you actually get the most active people around in town. Some towns actually have an elected town meeting, but most, um, you know, you can just show up as long as you're registered to vote and you actually vote on the stuff in the town. Like they'll be like, we need to buy a new snowplow and people from the town who took the time to show up to town meeting, get to vote and decide whether or not we get a new snowplow, get to decide whether or not we hire another police officer, get to decide whether or not that playground gets built. Like not people we elect, but like I actually get to go vote on it. And it's funny because there's a lot of complaining about it every time there's some issue that like younger people care about, like when they wanted to do the new high school. And they're like, there has to be a better way. I can't believe there's no absentee voting at town meet. But it's not supposed to be a thing like that. It's not just supposed to be a referendum of everybody. It's supposed to be the people who show up and are the most engaged in the issue and want to vote on it in the town. And but they can't fathom why you would have this like extra step in things, right? Or they don't understand why so many things are elected. Like our town moderators elected in some towns, like the, I mean, all kinds, like essentially the accountant for the cities elected in some cities. Like it's crazy what we elect. There's still one town in Vermont that elects a dog catcher, <laughs> right? Like the expression, you couldn't get elected dog catcher. And there's a lot of like, when people see this, like I'll see the comments on Twitter when somebody's like, "Why is the like the 
chief financial officer of your town an elected office. Like, why wouldn't you have like the mayor appoint that person? You know, and in some places it is appointed. Um, you know, it, but in some places, like people don't even elect their school committees. In some places, the school committee is appointed by a mayor, right? Like, it, so there's a certain sense from people like, and I sense it from younger people saying like, oh, we want the adults running it. We want the experts running it. We want Dr. Fauci to pick the best person to run my school board or whatever. Like, we want the smart people in the room to go like pick who runs the government because, you know, we don't want people just electing. You could elect anybody. You could be elected, Tom, to like be the town moderator and run town meetings. Can you imagine what a disaster that would mm-hmm. be? <laughs> that would be a mess. It would be oh. terrible. Oh. Right? Like we elect our town assessors who determine the tax rates for our people in town. That could be a disaster and, if and we that, elected somebody and terrible. And that puts people in a very granular way close to the, the decision making. Right. Very close because the people know. There's that old saying uh, talking about... a. I'm going to get this wrong, but but rather than just arbitrarily have top-down decisions made, uh, there's this saying about a college that was built, and mm-hmm. they wanted to they wanted to meet to talk about where to put the walkways between buildings. Mm-hmm. And one guy spoke up and said, "You don't build any walkways right now. Wait to the end of the year and see where the people have walked to hmm. get to the buildings." And that's the people. That's the bottom, bottom up, yes, yeah. saying this is how we do it. Watch our behaviors. You can codify them once you've seen literally a consensus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or like we elect our board of health. Like, why would our board of health be elected? It's kind of nuts, right? Like, we elect the people that inspect all the septic systems in town and, and like determine what rules restaurants have to follow like and i imagine that in a lot of places in the world people would think it's crazy that we're like electing all these random little things and not like appointing people who are qualified or whatever but that's how we do it and yeah it's messy and yet sometimes leads to weird messy results that people don't Mm -hmm. like but it's how it works here and it's led to the situation that we have today so it's one of those things like it's another chesterton's fence thing where we have this sort of messy chaotic system and it's led to some sort of not great results occasionally Mm -hmm. things that don't make sense but it seems to work pretty well overall so it's sort of like i feel like the conservative attitude is kind of like don't mess with a good thing. Don't fix it if it's not broken. Just leave it alone. Like the Electoral College or anything else. Who knows what unintended consequence is going to come from screwing around? Who knows what unintended consequence is going to come from screwing around with the filibuster? Oh, we never had it until whatever year. Like, okay, well, now we have it. Now it's sprung up. The system's operating under this constraint. Just because you don't like the result, mm-hmm. what's going to happen next year when it turns out Republican, I mean, really, like, do they not think ahead 10 seconds? No, they it's don't. like they have like the they memory don't. of a freaking goldfish because what's going to happen in 2022, which I show being this year, when all of a sudden the Republicans have 51 seats in the Senate and they've gotten rid of the filibuster? Right, of course. Well, no, I mean, they, but they don't, there's no... And they've already set a precedent that national elections are run by rules that the Senate decides to make up off the cuff. Well, I mean, isn't the left 
don't they ever just have to say, pull the fire alarm and say doomsday? So right now it's doomsday because we're stealing democracy, because we're changing voting rules. And so we need the filibuster thing done. And then when the Republicans use the filibuster thing, it's doomsday again because the Republicans are... are I mean, the, the left is in such a perpetual um, state of panic that... I don't think that they ever have to think for it, 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 it's a state of emergency always. But the Chesterson fence thing is don't ever take a fence down until you know the reason why it was put up, mm-hmm. which is so brilliant. Which is and I am such a impatient fool that uh, that I take I've had a lifelong full of. You thinking. don't want to know if it's a load bearing wall before you knock it down. To exactly. Open up the space. That you is, just open up the space exactly. and see what happens. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's also get over to uh, DeSantis. We played that audio here. Here he is on again, as usual. Well, I mean, look, I, I think if, if you, if I had a dollar for every lockdown politician who decided to escape to Florida over the last two years, I'd be a pretty doggone wealthy man, let me tell you. I mean, Congress people, mayors, governors, I mean, you name it. And um, it's interesting, though, the reception that, you know, that, that some of these folks will get in Florida, because I think a lot of Floridians say, wait a minute, you're bashing us because we're not doing your draconian policies, and yet we're the first place you want to flee to, uh, to basically to be able to, to, to enjoy life. And so I'm not surprised to see that continue to happen. Um, I could tell you, I mean, um, you know, there are probably about a half dozen governors who had restrictions on their people and then were spotted at various points in Florida. Some of it's been public. Some of it's not been public. But, you know, people tell me these things, and so uh, these things are spotted. And so that's just the reality that we're dealing with. Funny thing happened, Alice. Uh, you know, Feinberg Todd had called me. The phone rang a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Feinberg Todd, who uh, the host, the PM Drive host at the radio station where I came, had called me, and I texted him back saying that uh, I was doing the podcast. I'd get back to him. And... I must have somehow done the voice to text thing because there is a transcript of the last 20 minutes of our show. That is funny. The other day you texted me like, check one, two, check, check, I check saw, one, two. I saw that. <laughs> it says, in this country and some of these things that there isn't in other countries, and we have our debates and we have our political disagreements with already the underlying assumption, you know, that we don't think the government should be telling us what to do. We start from a presumption of freedom of speech. That's you, Alice. Mm-hmm. Then we debate within that framework. Wow, you're smart. Uh, right play, absolutely, of the it's government. It's okay. People heard it the first okay. time. Okay. This is you. remarkable. That's remarkable. Todd's going to be finish this thing and say, wow, what a waste <laughs> of my time. Um, so that is DeSantis. We're saying, obviously saying all, always the right thing. The guy is so keyed in. It's, uh, you know, you just, you almost want to hide him for two years so that uh, he doesn't get flamed out or, or destroyed. The other notable audio that's been out there is Chris Hayes having an epiphany. Nearly 66% of the eligible population. That has transformed the risk level and experience of the pandemic for the vast majority of those people. And of course, there are still people, many people, millions, who are immunocompromised or who are otherwise vulnerable due to age or medical conditions. But for the people who don't fall into that category, and we're talking about, you know, 150 million people, maybe or more, those people who are vaccinated, particularly those who are boosted, you know, the risk, the personal risk of, of being exposed to this went from something that we hadn't really dealt with specifically like this before in our lifetimes. We hadn't quite had an illness this infectious and this possible to cause serious illness to something that does look more like the flu. And the flu, of course, can still be dangerous, kills tens of thousands of Americans every year, but we don't orient our lives around the flu. 
So that's closer to the level of risk that, you know, 200 million Americans or less than that are now dealing with. And then when you add in the sheer exhaustion, many people feel, and I don't have to tell you this, I'm sure, because you're just feeling this yourself, many of you, with the lengths of this disruption in their lives. Obviously, the politics of the pandemic are just completely different than they were earlier in the pandemic. So what is this happening here? Is this the ice thawing? Because there's no way that somebody like Chris Hayes wants to see himself moving towards people like us. Well, no, but I mean, I think that the the scientific facts are becoming undeniable. And I think the left prides itself on being like, we're the party of science. We follow the facts. We follow the science where it leads. And there's just not any evidence to back up a lot of this stuff. And I mean... You know, they can sit here and argue like, well, we didn't know that cloth masks didn't work that well. And now we do know that they don't work that well. You know, we didn't know that all the plexiglass barriers weren't really doing anything. We didn't know that, you know, kids were at less risk than they are from than, you know, their vaccinated parents were like and that now this sort of there's sort of this like snowballing and this buildup of evidence that undermines so much of what they've been telling people to do over the last two years that that it's if you're even the tiniest bit intellectually honest and not just like a rabbit who's stuck in the headlights Mm -hmm. and living in fear and terrified of covid that it's like impossible to make an argument for a lot of it. Well, but how damning is it then that the cloth masks were the uh, battleground, the cultural battleground of the of the fissure in between two groups in this country? Well, they didn't say we thought they worked. Yeah, but they didn't think they worked. The, The CDC has always been consistent about them. We saw it. We read it. We used to read it all the time, almost two years ago. So, but but what does it say about them that these health experts watched the country fight and said nothing and said, they must have talked amongst themselves and said, should we differentiate? Well, I think there's a difference of opinion amongst health experts. I think there's like two kind of guiding philosophies. And the one that like a lot of public health people operate, like obviously Fauci, obviously Leanna Wen, obviously like a lot of these people that are opining on TV all the time are operating from an idea of telling people we will give people the absolute most fear mongering scenario. We'll give them the longest list of things to do. We'll give them like the scariest possible version and the most complex set of rules to follow in that case they'll at least do if they do 50% of it they'll be fine right like we'll give them everything we'll tell them not to play the music too loud we'll tell them not to share utensils we'll tell them to put up plastic barriers and then maybe they'll do some of the things right and I think there's another philosophy one that I agree with that I think smarter public health people agree with which is that You don't actually want to tell people too many things to do. If anything, you want to cut things out. You want to give them the absolute most important things because if you start giving people too many things to do, they're going to start picking they're going to start picking and choosing which ones they do, or they're just going to throw out the whole thing and say, screw it all. You know, it's like if you tell people, right, and this is, I can't take credit for this. This was a comment that some public health person made in, I think, like a Boston.com article. It wasn't like a 
a conservative source, but the public health person said that like Baker's order to tell people to wear masks outside, even when you're far away from other people, she said it was like telling people to wear condoms all the time, even when they're not having sex, because like, well, maybe they'll just wear it. If they wear it all the time, they'll be like extra super safe. And like, then they absolutely really can't get pregnant. Like, that's like the one philosophy. But the other philosophy is like, no, you don't want to tell people that you want to tell people like, only the absolute most important time to wear a condom because the risk is that if you tell them to wear a condom all the time, a bunch of people just won't wear condoms at all, right? Like, well, that's not that's not all the that's not limited to that. But the, the damage is as well is you're telling people. But they should have the, taken the, the hit the, on the, the damage is as well is that you're telling people, public health officials are saying that deaths and hospitalizations occurred, Alice, mm-hmm. because we quote. Let our guard down. So in other words, we weren't compliant on every bullet point of theirs. So which is why you have half the country saying, wait a second, you were uh, blowing off, uh, you know, uh, number six on the list of things you're allowed to do on Thanksgiving. Thus, my grandmother's dead, which created more division, which created. I mean, the, the way we did this to suggest that one half of the country was killing the other half of the country was crazy. I had the editor when I worked for the paper in Lowell. One of my editors was attacked because he said he's sick of wearing the mask. This is early on, sick of wearing the mask. And a girl whose father died and then mother almost died, may have died since, said, you know what? It's because of people like you that they died. And she attacked him and she said, you know, and my dad did everything right. It's like, okay, I don't know. Uh, You know, maybe we should think, uh, finish that thought at some point. But it's like it was totally, all of this stuff was was happily weaponized. And of course, there was a an election so to right. create the division of was- course of course and trump picked one side of the pandemic and so the liberals picked the opposite side just because you know when he was on the other side of it when he closed the border he was racist and they were against doing anything about the pandemic so they just did they don't have like a philosophy their philosophy is do the opposite of what trump says to do so that's you know whatever it's fine it's fine. The country's fine. The liberals are fine. It's okay. So I just got a little sidetracked because do you remember our friends with the fall foliage video in the town next door? Yes. Um, they're very excited um, that they had their first New England Christmas as well. There's this family that moved uh, to a town near us and they're on next door and they have been writing gushingly about how excited they were to move to New England and, uh, film their first fall foliage video because they can't believe they're really here to see the fall foliage in person in New England for real. Mm-hmm. So, And they've had now their first snow and their first real New England Christmas. Oh, God. So they're updating What is going us. on here? Uh, so they apologize for being late with wishing us all a uh, very merry New England Christmas. But okay. that's fine. In other social media news, the uh, t- famous town we used to live in, uh, they're making elementary schoolers eat lunch outside, including yesterday, where I think with the wind chill, it was about 19 degrees outside. Correct That's me. great. That's wrong. great. I'm One all for parent that. wrote in the Facebook group, I find it unthinkable that our students are being forced to eat lunch outside in the cold in New England in January. Today with the wind chill, it was 19 degrees. My daughter froze in the playground and had a chill in her all afternoon. This is not keeping kids safe. Do the teachers eat outside? Administrators? Do they get to drink coffee in the classrooms? It's nuts. And then one of the parents replies on here and says, 
and says, maybe you should dress your child warmly and thank the school for keeping them safe. (laughs) Safe from what? Safe from what? Your kid's more likely to get sick from being forced to eat outside. It's wild. I mean, but what we've done to children the whole pandemic is so psychotic and insane. Like, it just doesn't even... They're the lowest risk group, may I remind everyone. They're not really at risk of this. But... Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. To go back to your thing with Chris Hayes, it's like they're finally kind of realizing that they now have all the things they said they needed to feel safe. They've gotten their vaccine. They've gotten their therapeutics. Like, they have all their stuff. And, like, we can't continue to behave as though it's the apocalypse when literally everyone everywhere is getting COVID right now. Right, and I think that's one of the reasons, too, is that they, some people have called this, like, media COVID, because a lot of people in media have gotten it. Mm-hmm. So I think that a lot of them are saying, okay, I got it, I guess, and I did everything right, you know? <laughs> I did everything right, like Tucker, what's his name? Right, and I didn't get that sick. Right. Right. Yeah, Hunter Walker. We ruined his family's Christmas because he did everything right, and we wouldn't take measures. What a but- Rorschach <laughs> test to just find out somebody's, or not litmus test, I guess it is, to just find out somebody's core motivations in life like he's just a bitch who wants to blame people for stuff well it is it's so wild like i can't i'm trying to imagine like any other illness that like people would act like this about right like people don't get tested and they find out they're hiv positive and they don't go online and go like i can't believe all of you are having unprotected sex out there now i'm hiv positive i did everything right like who would do that it's so insane it's such like bizarre weird projection that but i don't know everything the left does is projection that's all they know how to do is they only look inside themselves and assume everybody else feels like they do uh, right, which is, which is kind of the thing, right? Isn't that where we are now and why? Well, yes, yeah, you know, I saw somebody saying it today. I forgot what I saw, where I saw this, but it's not only projection, but it's projection mostly when it comes to when they talk about white privilege, because really you've got wine moms and yoga pants, the whole thing, mm-hmm. restored Victorian houses, Range Rovers in the driveway, um, and academic uh, beta males um, who are talking about uh, white privilege. These are white people, upper class mm-hmm. white people. They're, talking, they're happy to talk about white privilege and how race, race has everything to do with everything because they don't want to it to be known that actually it's class is all the privilege and they've got it all. Right. You know, they've got all the money. So they don't want to talk about class at all. And the fact that they've got all the privilege in the world. So they're happy to cop to other privileges around to get people below them at each other. So they don't notice them. But they're still going to Martha's Vineyard. They're going to Obama's wedding. They're not making sacrifices. They're just starting fires beneath them. Of course. Isn't that always the way people like that operate? Alice, it's good to have you back. Uh, you look good. You sound good. Sound okay. I'm still a little, a little. Well, is there anything? Do we have viewer mail to get to or anything? Is there anything? Or should we just wait till tomorrow? Or Let me know. I don't want to spring it on you. Uh, we can wait till tomorrow. We'll go over some things tomorrow, I guess. All right. 
Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. We are on Twitter at Burn Barrel Pod. We also have a website, burnbarrelpodcast.com. Don't hack it. Please, our security is probably bad. I haven't checked. Um, we also are at facebook.com slash burnbarrelpodcast. And on... Um, Elizabeth Holmes is found guilty, the Theranos CEO. Found guilty in all four out of on four out of eleven federal fraud charges. I what? think I I have a thing for her. <laughs> She's she, a psycho. I know. She's a psycho. She like got a huge dog and told people it was. She's like a pathological liar. She yes. told people it was like a wolf. <laughs> I'm <laughs> She's sorry. Just crazy. I'm, the heart She's wants just Alice. Crazy. I'm sorry. She's just nuts. I'm gonna write you... to her in prison. Okay. Good. I'm glad. Enjoy. Uh, where was I? Uh, you can send us an email, Elizabeth Holmes, if you want to. Podcast at gmail.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.